Hello, Vincent Wall here and welcome to the latest episode of the Future of Business podcast brought to you by Mazars in Ireland and focusing on the significance of ESG, environmental, social and governance policies and reporting for businesses. And as always, we're joined by Mark Kennedy, managing partner of Mazars in Ireland to uh, help the conversation go along. Mark, we have a, a special guest today to talk to us about the whole area of human rights reporting, uh, a very important area within this whole ESG landscape. Uh, tell us who we've got. Hi, Vincent. Um, good morning. And I'm delighted to have Professor Mary Lee Rhodes joining us this morning. And I know Mary Lee quite a long time. She's very active in a number of social issues. But today, I suppose she's appearing as the co-director of the Trinity Centre for Social Innovation, which is part of the Trinity Business School. And they've been working particularly on the human rights area. But as you'll hear, Mary Lee has lots of views on lots of things. So you're very welcome, Mary Lee. Delighted that you could join us. Thank you very much, Mark. I am delighted to be here after many years of working with you. We're going to talk today about the whole area of human rights reporting. Um, this all goes back, I suppose, in terms of a, a global framework that, that has brought a lot of focus to, to the area ever since, to the United Nations General Principles on Business and Human Rights. And that goes back as far as 2011. Tell us how that, all that came about and, and, and the principal elements of it, Mary Lee. Well, um, you're right. It was uh, 2011 that the, um, the United Nations Human Rights Council unanimously adopted these guiding principles on business and human rights. And this was a, a report that was many, many decades uh, in the making. Uh, it set out to address sort of thorny questions of use and misuse of power by companies, at recognizing that companies in many ways had as much or even more influence on the lives of people around the world as, as states did. So the, the principles were written and adopted by the United Nations, and then each state uh, went on to, to sign them. So we've had this idea that we have three basic pillars of uh, uh, guiding principles for human rights. One applies specifically to states, and that is the state duty to protect human rights through legislation and, and law. Uh, the second is the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. Uh, and that is where the, a lot of the work that we're doing on business and human rights is centered. And then the third one is access to remedy, that individuals uh, and organizations have access to any remedies that uh, might be appropriate if there is some sort of violation of human rights. And those three pillars of uh, of these guiding principles are what is informing the, the legislation that is coming down the tracks and, and is, has already been adopted by some states, um, but also is informing how companies are examining and attempting to really embed uh, appropriate awareness and actions in human rights in their, in their principles and in their operating practices. I was just going to ask you that because Ireland has obviously signed up to this as, as a member of the United Nations going back, what, nine years now. So the fact that we have signed up as a, as a, as a, as a state... What requirement, uh, either morally or legislatively, statutorily, does that bring to, to companies based in Ireland to, uh, to comply and, and report on, on their human rights engagements? 
Well, it's it, morally is always a, a thorny question, Vincent. Um, I'm, I might come back to that at the end um, because I would like to maybe highlight exactly the the context within which Irish companies are operating. So um, we do have the uh, there's a non financial reporting directive Ireland adopted that has a bit of business and human rights reporting in it, and it requires companies ab- above a certain size to comply with the non financial reporting directive. Uh, that only came into force a few years ago, uh, and companies are only just now kind of realizing their um, requirements there. The other part that has come into force, if you want to call it that, is the Irish National Action Plan on Business and Human Rights. Uh, and that action plan was published in 2017. It was to be active from 2017 to 2020. Um, and that action plan was essentially recognizing that Irish companies and the Irish state um, had signed up to these guiding principles, and we needed to make them real in in Irish legislation and in Irish practice. The implementation group, for various reasons, met a few times, um, possibly not as many as they needed to in order to uh, advance it. And at the moment, the kind of final stages of this plan, as it is nearly the end of 2020, um, are being fleshed out by the implementation group to help companies become much more aware of what it is they should be doing uh, in their responsibility to respect human rights. So kind of awareness is probably the big uh, element of uh, Irish government uh, practice, aside from the non-financial reporting. With respect, maybe to come back to your moral um, imperative, really human rights have been accepted um, by all states and people for, I think the, we had the anniversary of the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, just last year. So this recognition that we're all uh, responsible for ensuring uh, human rights uh, for our, our neighbors and our citizens. And companies have always had uh, a moral responsibility to those they impact on. The The main one that we've seen a lot of legislation for is, of course, uh, workers' rights. But really, the active pursuit of embedding human rights uh, due diligence and awareness of human rights uh, practices and requirements, it really hasn't been a major feature of, of businesses uh, across Ireland or indeed across the world. Um, and it is increasingly becoming something that they are paying more attention to. Mary Lee, I, I masquerade under the title of financial journalist in my day job. And I, yeah. I have to admit, I hadn't heard of the United Nations General Principles on Business and Human Rights until I did a little bit of work in preparation for this chat. Mark, you're a professional auditor and you engage with firms all the time. Do you think there's a a broad level of awareness out there amongst businesses in general in Ireland? I think there's a growing level. I would say broad is probably overstating it. I'm, I would be far less familiar with, with the technicalities than Mary Lee, but I, I suppose I'd be very familiar with the non-financial reporting directive. And it's something as an auditor that we've been talking to clients for since it came in about two years ago. Um, and I, I have to say, um, maybe slightly controversially, the question you get more most often in boardrooms is how do we avoid reporting too much? What's the de minimis or kind of basic standard that we need to meet? And how do we, if we've got group reporting, can that cover us? So I think there's, it's not high on the priority list for companies at present. And a question that I, I was wanted to maybe ask Mary Lee was around the, the point of raising awareness, because I would, I'd agree 
I think we're at a stage where we're educating people and we're learning, I suppose, in, in my profession as well. And how that how you see that going, Mary Lee, is, is you know, who, who does that awareness engage with and how is that going to take shape? Well, markets, it, in the moment, it's in flight. Um, the ideas that we've been banging around, we're, we, we do sit on the implementation group or a member of that group um, as, as Trinity College. Uh, and we also sit on a subgroup uh, that relates to the pillar two, because I said there's three pillars. One is fundamentally state and legislative uh, actions. One is the corporate action. And then is this access to remedy. How are the, the processes accessible by individuals and organizations? So the awareness side is firstly to recognize that there's literally tons of information about the, the guiding principles and how to implement them. Uh, on the internet. And in fact, the Department of Foreign Affairs, and I think they're now just foreign affairs, they used to be foreign affairs and trade, but recent um, juggling has changed that. Um, they went out to try and say, well, could we become kind of a conduit? Could we, could we set up a, a one-stop shop? And they realized there's just, there's just so much out there that even a one-stop shop would be overwhelming to most companies, um, except for the, possibly the, the very largest ones. So it's not a problem of that the information isn't available. The problem is helping people to sort of navigate it. How do you find the thing that really applies to you and can help you as a company uh, fulfill your, your obligations or your sort of moral principles? So what we think is going to happen, although I don't want to anticipate what the implementation group might come out with, is going to be uh, some sorts of case studies around good practices uh, there will be, of course, uh, pointing people to sources of information that they can look up if they are interested. Um, there will be most likely some opportunities that the department and or existing uh, consulting firms, there's there's one consulting firm that we know of that comes out of New York called Shift, uh, and we mentioned them because they really worked with uh, Professor John Ruggie uh, I'm not sure he's a principal in it anymore, um, but he helped establish this in New York to help companies who were interested in figuring out how could they best comply with the guiding principles. So I think the next stage from certainly the government around how to help corporates is going to be, let, let us point you to some good information. Now, there's also um, interesting activity uh, being undertaken by some of the uh, the associations uh, the we're aware of the Irish uh, Association of Exporters. I think that's what they're called, um, although you can correct me there. Um, and they're very interested in putting together some information uh, sites or even some maybe some seminars or webinars or something to help their members uh, really look at this uh, within the context of the the wider ESG context as maybe one aspect of things that uh, Irish exporters should take a look at to really align themselves with the sustainability agenda. So I think that's what's happening. Wearing my journalistic hat, Mary Lee, I mean, in, in, in practical terms, what sort of things are we talking about here that, that, that Irish companies should be aware of? Um, I suppose we all, in general terms, know the whole, the, the whole issue of, of sweatshops in, in terms of the retail sector and cheap fashion and all of that. But does any Irish company basically that that is importing that has supply lines coming in from from outside the country and that that involves a lot of companies um do they need to be aware ultimately of the provenance of 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 
those supplies and the the broad environment in which the ultimate primary producers are, are living in and working in? They do. Uh, as as part of the, the guiding principles, you need to be aware of not only your own operations, but your entire uh, value chain. And increasing, there was legislation in France, I believe, that actually explicitly uh, put that responsibility uh, on companies who were uh, located in France. So that that is there and is likely to increase in terms of its its stickiness, I'm going to call it, uh, in terms of companies increasingly being expected to and then being required to ensure that the practices of companies, key companies in their value chain uh, are operating according to the to the principles. I think the the main thing that any company could start doing, and it, you don't have to be a multinational to to have a look at this, is to really look and see if you have um, any statement about your policy vis-a-vis the responsibilities from the guiding principles. And they're, you know, it's not very hard. It's sort of how you treat your workers, how you treat communities in which you operate, um, how you comply with stated legislation, um, and how you would essentially establish the risks that you have in your particular operations, how you would identify any problems there might be and who might you go to to identify these, how you might integrate your plans uh, or integrate the information into your plans and then how you might actually monitor that uh, your interventions uh, and your your strategies are actually having the impact that you want it's not it's not rocket science it's pretty much paying attention to these things uh, and i suppose that links to an extent mary lee to something that you i know and the center have been working on which is looking at what our irish companies actually saying in reports today about about their position on human rights and, and in the broader context. Um, and I, I know you've got a benchmarking exercise going on. How is that going or can you fill us in a little bit on it? Of course. Um, delighted to. It's a little bit, uh, it's just before we're going to launch it, which is uh, planned in the sort of latter part of November, which will coincide with the uh, UN has an annual business and human rights meeting uh, in Geneva uh, and our partners in this, the uh, a corporate human rights benchmark, or actually the people who, who designed the benchmark, um, they are they do their annual launch then. So we will be launching our our next report uh, at that time. But just to give you a, a bit of a background, the first time that this has been done in Ireland was last year, and we undertook to do this at the behest of one of the advisory board members, who is Mary Lawler uh, of the Business School, and she's quite keen um, to see the the plans for business and human rights due diligence get advanced very quickly in Ireland. And so we looked at 22 companies, which we, we selected to align with the kind of industries that often have human rights issues. So you're talking textiles, oil and gas exploration, minerals, agriculture. Uh, these are the industries that tend to have uh, some challenges in their human rights uh, due diligence and practices. So we went out and, and found uh, Irish companies that did the, that kind of work. And then we used the corporate human rights benchmark methodology, which they kindly shared with us. It's literally hundreds of pages of detail about a very formal approach to assessing, and this is important, assessing the public statements of firms about uh, their 
compliance or alignment with the guiding principles. So it drives from the guiding principles, the, the terminology of the guiding principles and the intent of the guiding principles are used as, a, as kind of a litmus test against public statements by the company. So this is not a benchmark that goes out and tries to assess the behavior of the companies or lawsuits that are pending against the companies, etc. It's only about the, the disclosures made uh, publicly by the companies. And we, we used the, the methodology, we ran some kind of uh, practice tests and seeing if, if we applied it independently of the CHRB, would we get the same answers? Um, and their methodology really was, was quite precise. Uh, and we found that it was fairly straightforward to apply. And when we applied this uh, to the, the 22 companies, we basically found that the average uh, result in terms of against a, a score of 100, a normalized score of 100, was 14, um, which isn't great. That's the, that's, that's the Irish company's benchmark, merely. Yeah. Well, now, let's, let's be clear. The, the, the first one, it was 22 companies that we chose based actually using the non-financial directive uh, test of size. So it's above ones that would have had to report in the non-financial directive and also to the extent possible in the industries that were identified as, as higher risk. Right? And there were some that were outside of that, but mostly they were in there. So what we, what's that saying is essentially these companies have very little public statements about this. It doesn't say whether they're doing something right or wrong, but it certainly says they're not making any statement about uh, their alignment around policies and strategies. So it's, there's sort of three categories within the corporate side. So it's having policies and strategies and and people who are responsible for them, you know, identified groups or people in the organization. The due diligence piece, which is going out and seeing if you have any problems and then rectifying them and seeing if that if it works. And then, of course, uh, providing, providing for remediation where things go wrong. And the statements about that essentially said, we're not, we're not doing anything. And it's not that they're not doing anything. They just haven't said anything. So we shared that last year. We launched it um, and uh, in November, same same time. Didn't get a whole lot of press. Um, it was a pilot. It was a student pilot. We were, you know, it was part of a master's thing, in which aligns with our goal in the school and the university to bring our teaching in, to be very much involved with our research. But we felt that a second one that was a bit more robust um, in terms of the companies that we selected, so it could be more representative of Irish companies as opposed to 22 companies that happen to align with the CHRB. Um, and we also decided to incorporate the semi-states. Now, this isn't something that um, the Corporate Human Rights Benchmark does at all, but they have called for it. And indeed, um, Ruggie has called for it uh, in subsequent statements about how to implement these guiding principles. So we are the first state or uh, NGO or university to do a benchmark exercise on their semi-states. So we selected the 50 largest companies, irrespective of industry, uh, and then the 10 largest semi-states. And we are coming pretty much to the end of it. It involves, of course, an engagement process, a, a voluntary engagement process with the companies. Uh, this year, 30 companies have responded. And some of them have engaged quite robustly with us about 
what we're doing and their numbers and how their 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 concerns about how this benchmark makes their companies look. And of course, that's the purpose of benchmarks, um, that the people or entities being benchmarked start to be concerned about where they land. Uh, so we're seeing even in the second year, even without legislation, even without any sort of awareness uh, program, companies are responding. And it's not because Trinity College is doing a, a benchmarking exercise. It's because their environment is becoming increasingly aware of these issues. Just to give you um, a small taste of what's coming is the the 14% that was achieved by the 22 well, selected companies last year has not hugely increased in the 60 companies that we have this year. So as an old uh, teacher of mine would say, plenty of room for improvement, Mary Lee. Plenty of room for improvement. And actually, Vincent, I might, I might say that that's the main objective of this is to give something to the companies and to the, you know, to be fair, to government to say, where do we stand? Mark, your response to all that? Well, I think, look, I, I, I was initially a little bit taken aback at the number because I hadn't heard it before. Um, I suppose it is important to reflect, and I think if I have it right, Mary Lee, that, that really what that is measuring is how much disclosure and engagement is there rather than being some sort of qualitative or quantitative assessment of what a company is actually doing in the field. Um, and and so, you know, I, I suppose as somebody who's made my career around good financial reporting and good decision making, what I immediately start thinking about is how do investors view that? And is there, you know, in, in a different context, we're seeing banks and insurance companies looking at these kind of disclosures either for pricing points or for investment decisions. And this kind of benchmark certainly throws a couple of questions in the air on that and probably would encourage more thoughtful CFOs and, and CEOs to think about how do I position my public face on this? So I think it's a, a really fascinating insight. Is your experience, Mary Lee, generally that, that benchmarking as an exercise does change behaviour, cause businesses in particular to, to focus on, on where they lie in that benchmark? Well, I have to I have to say, Vincent, benchmarking isn't my uh, area of expertise. Um, so, if I'm speaking, I'm speaking more as a, a generally informed member of the of the public. Um, but I have to say, the the way the CHRB was formed is it, it was sort of started off by the uh, Center for Human Rights in the UK, but also by Aviva in, investors. So. The idea that investors are supporting and engaging in this area, major investment, pension funds, etc., um, sovereign funds, are looking to f get information about where companies are on these, you know, wider ESG issues. And so, what I would say is, well, everybody likes to do well. I mean, I teach, you know, I the. People care about the grade they get, as long as they think the grade has any sort of legitimacy. Um, but more importantly, they care whether their stakeholders, whom they may rely on, care about that benchmark. And I think what we're seeing is the pressure is, or the, the instigation for these is coming from investors uh, and nation states. So to the extent companies care about their view, um, they will care about the benchmark. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. It's also, 
I think, really profound change. I mean, something I was involved in years ago and was discussions about the the new standards on on voluntary reporting about a decade ago. Um, and we talked about the six capitals and companies moving in a voluntary basis to talk, to reporting on some of these issues. Um, and I was very disappointed, I think, you know, and I worked both here and in the UK on some initiatives around it and found that largely investors weren't interested. So there's been a shift in that. Mm. And I think that's bringing pressure then on companies who, in a voluntary sense, some of them were willing to go this path a decade ago, you know, so that it's very positive. Um, I suppose the, the, the other thing that does strike me is, and there was a very interesting study in France last year, where, where it's not just about investors, but students, college students, were very were surveyed and were very explicit on those companies that they didn't want to work for and they didn't want to buy from, and it was because of ESG issues was what mm. was the response and it was a very it was a big news story last Christmas in in Paris because major companies were thoughtful about it and reacted to it you know so I think we do see the power of of independent observation and benchmarking in that way. And I think it's interesting you pick up France because um, the French authorities have been very active in this area. Uh, you know, in addition to legislation, uh, last year around this time, there were two major lawsuits launched uh, around business human rights, one of which uh, was uh, against uh, a French energy comp- company, Total. So NGOs in Uganda and France launched a major lawsuit for not addressing human rights uh, around a project uh, in Uganda. Um, And the second one was uh, against uh, British American Tobacco on behalf of uh, workers in in Malawi. So these things are quite uh, visible in some in some countries. And interestingly, just recently, BlackRock, whom we've referenced a number of times in, in this series, uh, Mary Lee, the largest fund manager in, in, in the world, uh, joining uh, other shareholders in taking Procter & Gamble to task about where they're sourcing and how they're sourcing their palm oil. Not to mention pennies. Of course, we have the, the pennies. We used the pennies case uh, in our teaching of uh, business and society. So, you know, there, it, it is something that Irish companies and Irish citizens uh, should be and are increasingly concerned about. Thank you for taking the time today, Mary Lee. It's been really an interesting insight into your work, but also this area and how, as I I said a minute ago, kind of independent observation is is driving a bit of behavioural change. There's one question that I said I'd ask at the end of each podcast, which is a much more... um, personal question. It's not necessarily about your your specific work and topic, but if there was one or two things that you'd like to see Irish companies taking on board and doing in the coming year in this area, what would you suggest to listening CEOs and CFOs? Well, um, the first thing is look and see if you have a human rights policy. It's it's not that hard to write one, to be honest. There's plenty of examples out there and plenty of support about what a good human rights policy looks looks like. And what we found in our study was that there were bits of these things around, but no, in many cases, no coherent one. So, you know, put aside a bit of time, your board or your CSR group, whatever, to really examine what you have. And could you turn that into an explicit human rights policy? A, a fairly easy win, to be honest, uh, around, uh, around this. The second one that's a, a much more... Um, comprehensive is is the due diligence, is to really put teeth behind the policy. You need to have an assessment of the risks, an assessment of the sort of things that can go wrong or may be going wrong, processes 
for addressing them and processes for monitoring. Um, but again, companies are, are very good at that. That's a pretty good standard operations, but having human rights at the center of it, along with, you know, product and service production. And then the last thing with respect to easily coming up in the benchmark or easily engaging in it with, with those stakeholders who are interested is be transparent about what you're doing. I think, Mark, to come back to something you said in the very beginning, one of the things that we hear a lot from people we've just talked to, companies that have come back to us, and they said, you know, our advice is don't say anything you don't have to. I think that's a really important point. As someone who, who spends year, has spent years and years looking at accounts, you know, don't say things that, that you don't mean and don't say things that you don't, you don't have to. And the other thing I, I, I would very much like to, to, to quote from you that you said earlier for, for people who are interested in the topic is it's not rocket science. Actually, keeping it straight and keeping it simple is the, is the way forward. Absolutely. It's better to know and show. On those notes of wisdom, we might leave it there for this episode of the Future of Business podcast. I'd like to thank in particular Mary Lee Rhodes, uh, co-director of uh, the Trinity Centre for Social Innovation for joining us today. Thanks a million, Mary Lee. And as always, Mark Kennedy, managing partner of Mazars in Ireland. Uh, Thanks, Mark. Until the next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Business with Vincent Wall and Mazars. You can comment and rate us wherever you find this podcast or on mazars.ie. Bye for now.